I mean, we have some really wealthy communities around where I live. And I don't care if they're reading Robin D'Angelo. I want their tax money. You know, I don't really care what they think. I, I want the money. Not me personally. I mean, I'll take some. <laughs> but, um, but really, you know, I, I want my kids to have it. I want the kids in my city to have it. This is the Mindfully White Anti-Racist Affinity Group Podcast. I'm Christine Eaton. On this show, you'll hear white people talking frankly about whiteness, white privilege, white supremacy, and what they're trying to do about it. But first, let's go over a few important points. You may be wondering, what is an affinity group? It's a group of people linked by a common interest or purpose. So in this case, if you identify as white and are working towards racial justice, or are just curious and want to learn more, this podcast might be for you. The phrase mindfully white means that being present with open-mindedness, curiosity, non-judgment, and compassion were used to create a supportive space within which our guests were invited to share their stories. Throughout the episode, you'll be prompted to use mindfulness as a way to practice working with your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions with regard to this topic. As you may know, mindfulness practice has deep roots in Buddhist teachings, which have been preserved for the last 2,600 years. As your host and a student of Buddhism, I pay respect to the Asian ancestors from whom these practices come, and specifically the Buddha's foundational teaching of the Four Noble Truths. These inspired the framework for this podcast. In that teaching, the Buddha prescribed a way to end suffering. Here, we are looking at how we can individually contribute to ending racism, a form of suffering, by seeing it more clearly in ourselves and everyday life, understanding its causes, and taking action. You will often hear that it's an issue for white people to center themselves and their voices when talking about race. This is true and needs to be carefully examined within the context in which it happens. Here we need to hold two things as realities at the same time, that centering white voices is often problematic when talking about race, and that it is also necessary so that white people can support and learn with each other in community. Listening to and engaging with these conversations are by no means a replacement for taking the time to do the same with Black, Indigenous, and people of color. This is an addition to that work. Please refer to the show notes for some helpful resources. Before we begin, I'd like to offer some suggestions on how to listen to this conversation. It's important to remember that our guests are not experts on racism, white supremacy, or privilege. Neither am I. We are offering our dialogue primarily as an opportunity for you, the listener, to engage with curiosity. Those being interviewed are inviting you into their perspective and direct experience. There will no doubt be times that you disagree with what's being said, feel it could be said a different way, or even find yourself becoming agitated. You're also likely to find ways that you relate, learn, and want to know more. As you listen, I encourage you to be aware of what you're feeling and thinking with a sense of openness and compassion for yourself and others. Even notice where in your body you feel it. This is an exercise in mindfulness. And I believe that if we can take this same approach with us into conversations we have in person, on social media, or anywhere really, we may be able to move along this path further together. Let's get started. (laughs) 
In this episode, I'll be speaking with Yusuf, a 47-year-old man raised in Pomo and Coast Miwok territory, otherwise known as Califast, Aslan, or California. He is now a guest who identifies as a settler, Anglo, Indigenous, and Kawalangan in Lynn, Massachusetts. Lynn is the historical home of Montawampate and many Indigenous cultures, including Pawtucket, Massachusetts, and Wampanoag. Yusuf is a communications professor at a community college where he sees possibilities for a rising decolonial futurity. Since childhood, he's been living and working in multicultural environments, which have significantly shaped his perspective on race and privilege. Okay, so to kick things off, uh, I'd really like you to tell us a little bit about you. If you really sit and reflect on, you know, who am I? What are the things that come to mind? <laughs> Do you have any more specific ones? That, that one's really hard. That's a hard question. Can I ask you what feels hard about it? Yeah, it's, it's like the ultimate philosophical... If I knew who I was, I guess I could talk about roles that I play. You know, I'm a teacher... And I feel like I'm an active member of the community where I live, and a husband and a father. I, I feel pretty strongly about my identities, I guess, as a, in terms of my spiritual practice. But I'm not sure any of those things. The more things I do rather than things I am. Okay, interesting distinction. I really appreciate yeah. how you went so deep with the question and then brought it up to a role-based identity. All right. So let's enter topic one. Okay. So this is around how you came to know about your own identity as white, uh, focusing on that role, if you will, and that racism is a real thing in the United States. So when did you first realize any or all of that? So the first uh, like racial experience that I can remember was a moment of racial envy. I think it was in first grade. I grew up in a rural community in Northern California where I thought of us as having two racial groups, uh, white and Mexican. In reality, we had at least four racial groups, which is white, native, Chicano and uh, Mexican. So it was in first grade and I saw a fellow student of mine who was rocking this super cool lowrider getup and I realized I have no way to access that, you know? It's like a, a co-culture, you know, the, the lowrider culture and he had the hair and the jacket and the pants and I had a memory, like a realization, like, oh, wow, like that is a super cool cultural expression that I have no idea, you know, how, how to access that. And then the first time I realized that our cultural expressions carried, you know, I guess societal weight, I think it was at the end of second grade. You know, I finished second grade thinking, wow, our teacher was so awesome. But then one guy especially, but many other Chicano kids were complaining about how awful that teacher was. You know, in my mind, I kind of made a connection like, oh, this probably has something to do 
with race. So those were probably the first time I, I recognized racial difference and then probably the first time I recognized, I guess, racial hierarchy. Okay, so that is a really distinct memory, I would say. I'm curious, back then when you were a child, was there anyone you could discuss this with in your life to get more clarification or understanding about it? Um, I mean, I don't want to throw a wrench in this whole project either, but my, my personal ethnic background is a, a little more complicated than just white. Uh, my mother is a Kwawalungan tribal member, just a small tribe from Onalaska. And so even in elementary school, even though I was white, I was also part of, I don't remember which title, Title VI, you know, special education, special programs for Native students. So including that, I mean, students were comfortable talking about racial stuff. People weren't shy uh, when I was a kid or in middle school or in high school. Plus, a lot of my teachers, I didn't understand this then, but later on I realized a lot of my teachers were different types of radicals, either, you know, white radicals from different left traditions or like veterans of the Chicano movements of the 60s and 70s. And my parents were radicals as well. Uh, my father was a communist and my mother uh, just a liberal so yeah, I, I, I never felt like race was something that was off the table or taboo or... Yeah, people were always talking about it, it seems like. Okay. Having that extra information about your family background is not in any way throwing anything off. I think it adds a lot of value okay. and understanding for how you come into this. Yeah. It's complicated, yeah. which is what we're also trying to show. <laughs> it's very complicated. I really don't like these categories, the uh, the racial categories, but I know that I live and experience life, you know, as a white person often, but not always. Like, it's really, it depends what the box is. But I will, I'm comfortable checking white or mixed. And so in thinking about yourself, how have racist attitudes and actions shown up? <laughs> probably a hundred times a day. Um, right, right. I mean, you know, I, I probably have a bad, a bad thought, you know, um, not necessarily around race, but you know, I'm sure I have sexist thoughts and racist thoughts and heterosexist thoughts. I mean, it's easy to, to think of the ways that as a white person, I don't have to think about race. I think more common is friends, you know, pointing out what we would now call privilege, you know, like not, oh, you're doing something racist, but oh, if you looked like me, you wouldn't have had the same experience in that situation, um, whether with the police or, um, or, or even interacting with a bank teller or many, many other, many other places, you know, so I, I can't think of of any time where someone's called me racist, but I can't think of many times where people have pointed out uh, what we would call privilege. And how do you respond to that generally? When someone that's a person of color is pointing out your privilege, how does that make you feel? 
and what's your general response? If you have a specific example, that's great. But if you don't, like just generally speaking, how do you handle that? Yeah, I mean, I think I handle it like kind of the same way that I handle any criticism. It's like, no, that's not true. You know, internally, you know, uh, I, I definitely in general try to follow the Chinese uh, think twice, say nothing proverb, you know, and I'm not always successful, but the internal dialogue, you know, it's like, no, that's not true. And then, you know, oftentimes like, oh, maybe that's true. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, that's that's mm -hmm. true, you know. So there's a defensiveness that comes up, it sounds like, based on what you just mentioned. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, it can possibly yeah. be. I, I think any, yeah. Any, yeah, any time, you know, it's like, oh, no, there's another factor or. So as someone of a mixed race background, can you think of a time you were racist to yourself or noticed internalized <laughs> racism? I think I think for a long time I did have uh, anti-white anti-white racism as like a kind of a coping mechanism you know like oh um racism is bad white people are bad i'm bad i i think i i did have uh, anti-white sentiments for a long time like uh but i i think i that i've scrubbed mo i think i've worked through most of that yeah I, I think i've worked through most of that but yes I believe you were about to use the word scrubbed, which I think is interesting. Guy scrubbed, yeah. yeah I think um, I that's said an that. interesting yeah, choice yeah. of word to me. You know, I'm really curious how race is such a on the table topic for you and your family and in your classroom. I'm thinking of that question and I have a couple answers, but it would be funny, you know, if you could ask, uh, you know, people of color who are my friends or family and see if they have the same reaction. They may, oh God, Yusuf, he's such a racist and he never wants to talk about race, you know, or my students might say the same thing. Um, but I think I just got, I got really lucky. I don't think it was any, um, any necessarily doing of mine is that as a young person, having really good friends who were from different cultural backgrounds. Because even even though I went to a mixed school, there were people who stuck primarily to their own racial groups, right? And so I was really lucky to be in a mixed group of friends. I was really lucky to be part of the Upward Bound program, which is a pre-college program, which was also, you know, had a lot of great mentors. Many of my mentors have been people of color and I didn't seek them out that way. It's just, oh, I happen to have this friendship or this mentorship and my mentor is a is a person of color. Um so a good a good group of friends growing up from different cultural backgrounds. Um I converted to Islam and where I lived in this rural area, the community was like ninety something percent uh Pakistani bachelors. And so I just like dove into that community because that was the only Muslim community that was around. And so here I am, this young white kid. I think a lot of time just hanging out, kind of absorbing other cultural situations and being being kind of comfortable. People have to talk, they have to talk, be able to talk honestly about the effects of white supremacy. Um, so both of those situations and then being in a intercultural marriage uh, as well, you know, that's helped uh, work. 
This is really interesting. Again, this mixed race background. I'm curious about the influence of your mom. And so I guess that this is a very fundamental question. What is white to you? So what is white? What makes somebody white? Yes. Yeah. Sure. So I think white is a, an identity uh, formed kind of in, in the in the confluence of colonialism and, and capitalism as a way specifically to exploit black labor. Yeah. So white whiteness is created as a way to 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 justify to um, you know extremely poor uh, white people that your your law isn't as bad as as, as black you know so I, I see whiteness as a, as an identity formed by by the ruling class as a tool of class organization and um, capital accum- accumulation and those systems that are devised from those roots are everywhere (laughs) and we're in many of them um so are there systems you're a part of that exploit or oppress people of color where you have been able to somehow um work with that or even make it better um yeah um i mean i try to read a lot I guess a very concrete thing and kind of shows the way like in my thinking that like race and not class as an identity, but class as like an examination of systems and and property and and production. Like if I'm at the grocery store and I'm choosing organic produce that is more expensive, like I am thinking about my family and oh yeah, I don't want them to be eating pesticides but i know the real danger of those things are the workers who are, who are being exposed to those pesticides like growing up in a rural area um and that labor force is racialized obviously they would use and have used whoever they can get but but right now you know they're relying on workers of uh, uh racial identity from central america or, or from mexico and i know that even when i'm buying organic those people are still, for the most part, unless they have a union contract, working in, in almost unimaginable conditions for me sitting here at this desk. But at least they're not having to deal with the, those pesticides on the job. And so I, I say that is probably the most concrete, you know, there's one concrete thing I did. That was probably the most concrete choice that I make consistently that has a racial element to it. So something that we might want to touch on in the final section is, you know, when thinking about what people can do when they're trying to understand their place uh, in a racial society is to think about labor continuums and where the things we buy and consume come from and the implications of that um, to make conscious choices. Yeah. Yeah. So moving now towards towards the end, because I think you've told us a little bit about how you've come to understand racism and whiteness and um, and moving towards what would we want people to take away from your life experience? Can you think of, you know, what you'd want people to take away from what you've learned 
about racism and having white privilege? Yeah, my advice would be to get involved in community struggles for uh, justice, whether that's uh, housing justice or justice against police violence or labor. I feel like the justice movements, the new ones, for example, the Green New Deal, the environmental justice movement really understands this idea that while we're working to fight global warming, we also have to have this intersectional approach where these these other issues aren't on the back burner. Like, oh, we're going to solve racial issues later. Right now, we have to work on the, the environment. I think they've really worked hard to integrate, you know, climate justice, not just, um, you know, stop, stopping climate change. So, yeah, so I would encourage people to get involved and work in solidarity with people in, in the community. And hopefully those will end up being, you know, justice movements tend to be uh, diverse groups. And, and through working together, I think even though, you know, I, I read a lot, I think working together is really the, the way to go. Okay, last question, I think. Okay. What would an anti-racist society look like to you? Broad stroke. That's a, no, that's the scary part. It would look like right now, the way I feel like at what an anti-racist society would look like is um, the capital of the Hunger Games. I'm fully convinced that the capital is fully ready to go for an anti-racist society where we have all the same injustices that we have now, but we just have the right mix of each person in each category. So we have to make sure we have, you know, a good mix of people in the capital and in, I don't remember all the districts, but um, which would be better. Like, I would rather have our ruling class be diverse than just old white guys. Like, that is better. I, I, I totally agree that it's better, but I'm afraid, I'm really afraid of us, us as a culture, focusing on that and then having a society that looks just like we have now but just with the, the adequate amounts of racial representation in each category. Mm. So that ties into the pessimism you were mentioning earlier, that you're just feeling pessimistic since I'm not... <laughs> the George Floyd matter. <clears throat> yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. I mean, so many things. I don't know if you've seen the, um, the intersectional CIA no. ad. Oh, you really should see that. So that really had a big impact on me because... Uh, it's this ad, it's a recruiting ad for the CIA where the, they're using all the language that I've been teaching and, and sharing for the last 20 years um, to recruit people for the CIA. Um, so that was a good one. Or Spike Lee does one for, um, for one of the Bitcoin, for one of the Bitcoin people where it's also all the same language that, that I teach and use. And so I'm like, oh God, what, <laughs> what am I doing? So yeah, so I, I, I worry that, that an anti-racist society would look just like our society, but um, we, would no longer, um, we would no longer have a hierarchy based on race, which would be better. I'm not saying that that would be worse. That would be, be better than what we have now. But it's not what I would like to see. Like I would like to have an anti-racist society where we also don't have poor people, right? And an anti-racist society where we also don't have homeless people and where we also don't have the same prison system that, that we have. 
now and we also don't have kids in cages. We don't want, you know, the right percentages of people not to have health care. We want everyone to have health care. And I think the, the anti-racist tradition has all those things embedded in it, but I'm really worried about the kind of corporate turn uh, of anti-racism without, without the material support for it. I just want to emphasize that I still believe it would be better that we didn't have racism, but I don't think it's, it's enough. I don't think it, it deals with the underlying injustices and inequalities that we have as a, as a country. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Again, highlighting the complexity yeah. to all of this and that there isn't one button that you push yeah. that makes it all better, but that right. there's um, many right. knobs like on a control panel that need to be right. dialed down and up in right. order for things to be. Right. I think that question is essentially a little bit of a utopic what does this look like to you? Um, but it's really interesting right. to hear you say, you know, Hunger Games, because I think it's an interesting yeah. um, exercise to imagine that, oh, wait a minute, it doesn't, it doesn't solve everything, that it is complicated, and that, um, and then the process of having to undo that and understand uh, how it's complicated can actually be a great learning experience. So... Thank you for highlighting the complexity to all of this um, from the starting at the age of five <laughs> to now. So thank you. Of course. Yeah. I now invite you to do a guided reflection with me inspired by my conversation with Yusuf. This meditation will focus on the land you're on right now. If you would please find a comfortable posture, whether sitting, standing, or laying down, one that you can hold for about 10 minutes. You may close your eyes or have them gently open with a gaze downward towards the floor. Noticing the body, where it may be holding any tension. Seeing if you can release it, even just a bit. Being aware of your breath, breathing in and breathing out. Allowing the body to feel as grounded as possible and as supported as possible by the earth below. And as thoughts come in and attempt to distract you throughout this meditation, just noting them and letting them go as best you can. Coming back to focusing our attention on the land that we're on. You can even do this by simply feeling yourself connected to the ground beneath you.
feeling this physical connection to the ground. Ask yourself if you are aware of the land that you're on. Are you aware of the indigenous cultures that were on this land before it was colonized? Specifically, if you are listening to this from North America, though that could be the case in many places in the world. Without judgment, just recognizing if you are aware of the historical homes that you're living on, the cultures that came before you. And even if you're not aware at this moment in time, see if you can allow a connection to occur with the land. A connection that involves curiosity, a desire to know more. an understanding of what needed to take place in order for you to be where you are right now. All the good, all the bad that made that possible. Taking a few deep breaths, filling the body, and releasing. Feeling the connection to the earth, to the land. And now turn your attention to the physical structure within which you are reflecting right now with me. Wherever it is that you are, acknowledging that whatever you're inside of was built by someone or likely a group of people Checking in again, are you aware of who built the structure that you're in? Are you aware of the time period that it was built? Noting to yourself, yes or no.
Again, bridging this connection from the land you're on to the structure you're in. Recognizing that many things and many people were involved in good ways and bad ways for you to be where you are right now. Notice how you feel. Are there any emotions arising? Any feelings in the body? Do you feel contracted or open? Just noticing. With an open heart and an open mind, see if you can become even more curious about the land you're on and the building or structure that you're in right now, or any land or structure that you regularly inhabit or go to. planting a seed of curiosity to do a little bit better at recognizing history and allowing that connection to be part of our everyday life in some way. For each one of us, the way that unfolds will look different. Continuing to feel your body connected to the ground beneath you. Inviting history, inviting curiosity. Allowing emotions to surface with compassion. 
inviting a few deep breaths as we close this meditation. Thank you for joining me. After hearing back the conversation with Yusuf and doing the guided meditation with you, I'd like to offer some reflections and thoughts that have come up for me as a result. And of the four episodes I've done in this series so far, this one has presented the most, um, I guess I would call it being tongue-tied or just still caught up a bit in, I would say, wanting to be a perfectionist. And let me tell you a little bit about why. I think it's because Yusuf identifies as Native American and because when he reviewed the bio that I read before my interview with him, he came back with an updated version that describes where he's from. And you probably caught on to that because it's different than the other bios and the other episodes. He put a lot of care into describing the tribes, the nations um, that were on the land or are the land that he lives on. And when I saw that, I immediately appreciated it and also felt like I am so ignorant. And the reason I'm not going to label this white fragility is because my understanding of white fragility is there's a defensiveness that tends to be the most prevalent emotion. Here, it's more um, probably shame would be the best way to describe it. And wanting to get it right and get it right now, get it right yesterday in terms of my own understanding of Native American history. Um, of course, I know a good amount, but I don't know nearly enough. And I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to this. So having that direct communication with him was so powerful for me in this episode. And it's why I chose to focus on a meditation on trying to ground oneself or really position oneself and get a felt sense for what is the land I am on can I get a little more curious and interested about the history of it, including the structures that I'm in? Do I know who built them? Do I know why? How can I be grateful for the situation I'm in? Or how can I recognize some of the atrocities that happened in order for me to be where I am? whether it's in the building you work, where you're getting your food, where it's where you live. Certainly not everybody's in a great situation, 
But nevertheless, we're all on land that was stolen. We're all on land where terrible things happened for us to be where we are. And holding the many realities of that. Not everything's terrible. Not everything is good. It's both. I find that a way to be able to hold on to the pain of history is to also have gratitude. It makes the container for holding pain and shame bigger. That's what I found in my experience. And of course, you know, you can check it out. Don't take my word for it, but see what happens. And so I can tell you that having recently moved, I am already checking out the website of the city and interestingly, though not surprisingly, noticing that the historical society tends to only talk about history from the 1900s forward and wanting to preserve buildings and whatnot from that time period forward. And of course, I don't expect a historical society to be looking to preserve the architecture and buildings from several hundred years ago, but it's interesting to see that a historical society is orienting itself in general, not more than 150 years in the past. What can we do about that? I doubt that's a unique situation, and I'm certainly getting more curious about that especially where there's a lot of Native American words used on streets, villages, bays where I live, and they're not given either on the site or on a website. By site, I mean physically in person and on the website. The recognition of the peoples who lived there before colonialism set in. So that's just food for thought. I hope that you found the meditation useful and maybe it is making you a little more curious about the land you're on or the structures you're, you're in and spend time in. And again, I welcome you to share this episode with anyone you think who might find it useful. And I welcome feedback as always at mindfullywhite at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>